0: Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy and I hope that you're staying safe. A little bit later, W. Kamau Bell, the American stand-up comic and television host, you know him from the CNN series United Shades of America, will stop by. First up though, let's get to know Jamaican novelist Marlon James. He's a Man Booker Prize winner, and today we talk about his most recent book, Black Leopard Red Wolf, a fantasy novel that draws on African history and mythology. The Washington Post called it one of the top 10 books of 2019, and no less an expert than Neil Gaiman said that it is a fantasy world as well-crafted as anything J.R.R. Tolkien made. I began this interview by asking if that kind of praise is kind of overwhelming.
1: It was overwhelming. I you know, because Tolkien stands so tall. I just realized my Freud and sleep, I almost called him Coltrane. <laughs> <laughs> Another guy that stands very tall yeah, over his field. That 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 Tolkien stands tall over uh, all fantasy since, but even some of the fantasy before. Mm-hmm. And as the sort of standard as to how to not just write the fantastical, but how to have the fantastical talk about really, really small private things like, like um, human nature mm-hmm. and, and um, the nature of, of evil. And when people who are insignificant have an effect on really, really large things bigger than them. Um, so it is kind of staggering and humbling. And, and I do sometimes wonder, who the hell are they talking about? <laughs> I... Do you pay attention to uh- reviews? man i'd love to lie and say no but actually you know i do i i do i say yes and no i do to a certain point after a certain point i do think it becomes very unhealthy right um to to read reviews so i read a good portion of the good i read a good portion of the bad the negative and then i just stop good criticism can cause as much damage as bad Mm -hmm. now a brief history of seven killings. The book of
0: night women are historical fiction. This is a much different kind of book. It's mm-hmm. a it's a fantasy novel. Uh, the beginning of a trilogy, which I can only imagine is a, a, just a massive undertaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's lots of story shards and threads that all have to tie up over the next couple of books. Uh, why the change?
1: Why the change? First, I got to say, you know, it says something about this generation that a novel set in, that ends in 1992 is considered historical.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, are we this old? Well,
0: I, you know, listen. I, I spend a lot of time. I'm a. a I write about movies, and I spend yeah. a lot of time uh, talking about film, and and I lecture to people, and I you know uh-huh. I, I do that sort of thing. And I'll mention *Raging Bull*, and the students will go, "Man, that is an old movie."
1: And, yeah. and So you know, there's... it's like when people say "old school hip hop," and they go, "Most deaf." I'm like, "Are you serious?" <laughs> I still think Curtis Blow is old school hip hop. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, it it's I think there are a couple of reasons for this uh reasons it why it doesn't feel like a jump to me and there are a few reasons why one being that there are always um fantastical and magical elements in all my books um brief history of seven killings maybe the closest I've come to a so-called realistic novel, but one of the main narrators is a ghost yeah um so there is always there's always that because I think growing up in the Caribbean. Um, you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez said it that the reality is it's sometimes crazier than the wireless fiction. Um, so there is that, but there is also my background, how I grew up, and the stuff I read. I always read, um, you know, I read. I've always been reading comics, in particular. And my primary source of fantasy and mythology were comics, were encyclopedias on Greek myth and Norse myth and, and, and so on. But I've always been around them and I've always been fascinated by them. I've always tried to draw comics and fail miserably at it. <laughs> um, but that type of world was never away from me. Even when I was writing, you know, you know, my favorite TV show is Buffet the Vampire Slayer. Um, you know, I, I, I remember... Um, not just watching sci-fi films, but even reading the novelizations of sci-fi yeah, yeah, films. Yeah. Uh, so that to me, that those worlds were never so far from me, even regardless of what I was writing. So it didn't feel, it almost felt like a homecoming for me than um, a sort of a, a change of direction. And
0: you say that you've always been drawn to monsters and witches, mm-hmm. and you've sort of answered it here, but tell me, can you expand on why? Um...
1: I think I think that there is something about that world that always haunted me and always thrilled me and also scared me. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember for years, and I do mean years, I was so terrified by the Wicked Queen in Snow White. I had to, I, I couldn't I couldn't close the door of the bathroom when I was taking a shower. <laughs> People must have think I was a young exhibitionist. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I didn't realize no because I'm so terrified of the wicked way beyond the age where I should be. Yeah. Because I'm sure even when I was 10 or so, I'm still terrified of of this Wicked Queen. Um, I just always believed in it. I think also being a kind of occasionally, more often than not, depressed kid in the suburbs, you know, I remember wanting nothing more than having superpowers. More than just flying away from here. Yeah, and just sort of expanding past the kind of dull place
0: that you lived. And you're a novelist. Mm -hmm. You live... And die, I suppose, over your imagination. So before mm. you were putting words together, I guess maybe your imagination was already it creating was. those stories and fantasies in your head.
1: Yeah. I would lie in bed and and spend hours just daydreaming, just living in a different kind of world. I don't think that's all that I don't think that was altogether necessarily a healthy thing to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was something I did an awful lot. I spent quite a bit imagining other worlds. Yeah. And the the new novel, and I'm speaking with Marlon James, the novel is
0: called Black Leopard, Red Wolf. Uh, This is getting, I mean, unbelievable rave reviews. I've been collecting them out of the (laughs) newspaper here. And uh, it's the Globe and Mail here that says... Um, their understanding of the world, the power of a novel, of nature of reading itself, fundamentally changed after reading this novel. I mean, there are, there are rave reviews here that really made my eyes, my <laughs> eyeballs dance as I read them. I was, I was so happy for you when I knew that you were coming in. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about world building here. Right. So you've, you've created worlds in your heart. So was this book trickier because you were completely inventing the world mm-hmm. that it exists in? Novelists do that, yeah. but this is a fantasy world. This yeah. is a world that is beyond the scope of a normal novel. Yeah,
1: it is absolutely trickier. It's trickier. It's so much more precarious. There's so many ways in which you could fall into traps. Mm-hmm. There are so many points of danger, and I'm not even talking about the monsters. Because um, the first trick of world building is to not make it seem as if you're doing it. Right. right. Um, it's fantasy to us. It's real to the characters. Uh, so, I can't have it where even my characters are moving through the world like tourists. right. But at the same time, it's not yeah. like I'm writing about New York City or Kingston, Jamaica. I, I there is world building that has to happen. So that's the first struggle. How do you build this complete world and then make it seem as if it didn't? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that 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 was a constant up to the last minute, I think, before it went to the press. That was still something as a matter of writing and rewriting and editing and chopping. Um, how do you talk about a giant fish being a raft, but then like you go, "Oh, look, it's a giant fish, <laughs> a raft." It's, 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 your characters have to be beyond it, so the characters had to have a comfort with the newness that I can't couldn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's one thing. I also didn't want to get into this kind of exoticizing Africa. Um, I was I was writing. Uh, it's still a fantasy world. It's and I you know it's 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 a. Calling it Africa is, is is about as real as calling Middle Earth Earth, mm-hmm. you know, or calling Tatooine Sahara. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but I knew, but what I what I knew what what I realized, and it took me it's some point in the writing, I realized it's not necessarily that I'm trying to write a mythical Africa so much as a world in which Africa is the only context in which it could exist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just as so how in 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 you know in In um, Tolkien, um, you know, Scandinavian country and and Celtic countries, the only context in which it could exist, even though it's neither of those. And I think that realizing that helped, it certainly helped me more in in the world building. But it's still, I mean, I, I researched this book for a good two years before I wrote a word. And what form does that research take? It takes everything. For one, it means reading a lot of very racist and colonialist and imperialist and orientalist books in Africa, right. which are mostly read for laughs. Um, <laughs>, <laughs> yeah, it means, but it also means going out finding what all these African nations have been saying about themselves mm. and the more recent work. So it means reading a lot of stuff that's still in academic language. Thank God I'm an academic so I can understand right. it. Um, it means um, going to the back of books and looking at their bibliographies and reading what they read. Right. Because there's some, even some fantastic books that are still one person's perspective, which I totally respect. But I want to see the source material. I might come to a different conclusion. Mm-hmm. It means tracking down oral epics and seeing if anybody translated them. It means trying your hand at learning and failing to learn quite a few African languages, um, none of which I've learned to speak that well. Um, most of the languages I, I, I studied, like Wolof, well, I actually more, studied more the linguistics of it than the vocabulary. How, do they, how does a sentence come together? Right. Because um, I knew it would affect—I knew that this, this novel that, one, I'm writing English, which is already a compromise. But how can I trick it? You know, how can I take the language and take it into territory it didn't intend to go? Um, So that meant studying the grammar and structure systems and the cultural beliefs behind um, quite a few languages. But, yeah, it's—but it also meant being, in a way, being paralyzed by all this research because it's so overwhelming. There is so much. And the funny thing is, it's not even that I scanned all of Africa. I pretty much started below Ethiopia, Upper Kenya, and and that was enough to fill a 600-page book. And uh, you know, but being so overwhelmed that and and by all the dilemmas of well, how do I represent this? How do I have such and such? How do I not become a black guy culturally appropriating Africa? Um, you know, how how do how does a novel happen? A fantasy novel happen, or an imag- or a speculative fiction novel happens that still has to deal with the fact that more often than not, when we think of speculative fiction, we think of European. Mm-hmm. Now we think of people using a lot of European mythology, European history and inverting that and and moving beyond that and beyond all that language.
0: Now, this is just the first book in a planned trilogy. That'll be, by the time it's all said and done, about 1,800 pages. So I asked him, do you know where this is going? Do you have an end point? Have you planned ahead? This is what he said.
1: Yeah. Um, The funny thing is it's already ended. Mm. It, it's it's um this is what I I I, I we can talk about when exactly I figured it out, but at some point I realized that this wasn't gonna be a part one, part two, part three. Um, trilogy um, anybody who reads the first one and know I went from beginning to end yep. there is really nothing more it, the, the, he's right the child is dead there is nothing more to know <laughs> as as he says but the, each each novel is a different character's perspective on the same event right so it sort of moves like associated a Rashomon kind with, of like style. a Rashomon which is a huge influence on me in fact the second to last time I was in in Toronto it was to give a talk on Rashomon actually So mm-hmm. um, so yeah, the 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 different perspectives on the same thing. Sort of like a kinda like Alexandra Quartet yeah. or Jane Gardam's Old Filth Old Filth trilogy. Um because the it it fascinated me the idea that t- two different people could come up with two completely different stories. It's like when two people give an in depth deposition of seeing the same thing as a totally a totally different thing and but that also ties into a lot of african folk storytelling where you know from the get-go that the trickster is telling the story you also know that you may hear the same story five days in a row but it's a different person in the room a different person or a different character telling you their version and you know and you realize that these are five different stories even though they're talking about the same event it also does two things it 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 throws the whole idea of truth up in the air um, what exactly is that, mm-hmm. and it also leaves a reader with something to do like one of the things I've warned readers is that I'm not telling them who to believe. um there are three people talking about the same event with three very, very different versions of it, and so any of them could be the actual truth or none of them or none of them yeah As yeah, you know it's like. I don't tell her to believe Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, but yeah, if if they if 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 that becomes important as to who is telling the truth, then the reader is going to have some detective work to do.
0: And I wrote a book, uh, a, a journalism book, uh, a number of years ago about a movie called The Devils, and I had to track down everyone well, Ken Russell film.
1: So you should know one of my longest-running things I do is every month or so I harass Criterion Collection. Oh, yes. It's like, when are you going to bring out The Devils? Oh, well, I wrote an entire book about The Devils, mm. and I I tracked down all the actors,
0: mm-hmm. most of whom were old and don't have agents anymore and, yeah. you know, all that stuff, to find them all. And uh, one guy in particular, Murray Melvin, told me a story that contradicted Everything that everyone else had told me <laughs> about something that had happened on set. Mm-hmm. It was a small detail, but it was a, a detail that I mm-hmm. really wanted. And I said, well, actually, your co-star is saying, he goes, who's to say that my memory is wrong? Mm-hmm. And I was like, absolutely. You know, So I
1: ended up putting both versions in the book because yeah. I couldn't tell which was mm-hmm. accurate and which wasn't. But it's the same thing with the previous book, the, the Bob Marley assassination attempt. I put all the versions in there, all yeah. the theories. One um, well, because I really don't know. And all of them are pretty valid. But I also think this whole idea of a final truth is so, it's so Calvinist. Mm-hmm. It's so, um, you know, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, Christian. But but don't you think, though, that
0: politically and everything else in the world mm-hmm. right now, but let's talk politics
1: because it's, mm-hmm. a, it's an easier metaphor, that it, it, it has become like sports. When we're getting in an argument with a right-wing person, because I'm pretty left. And I said, you know what, here I said, here I'm gonna tell you six things that conservatives get right. <laughs> and I told him, of course I can't remember a lot of them yeah. now. And I said, No, you tell me six things that liberals get right. And he couldn't give me two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you're right. It's it's um It's polarized. It's polarizing as poison the discourse. Mm-hmm. Um because I you know I mean I live in the States and I've seen the flaws in both. Um, you know, I like to remind people that um, the, the the biggest displacement and the biggest um, examples of how systematic racism are eroding communities of color are in liberal cities. Mm-hmm. So, so for all this talk about you being liberal, your gentrification is destroying communities of color. So it's 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 not what it, it's too easy to paint villains and saviors. I, you know, I find in in you know in both, and I also think it, it's. It creates a it creates a weird kind of world. Like I teach, I am teaching now students who were born in the twenty first century. Mm-hmm. Here are some of the things they take for granted: that five thousand people in the world are all on their same side because that's their their Facebook friends list. Right. So when they come with a negative, not even negative, a different opinion, they genuinely can't process it, and they struggle. And I have to know, now I have to teach my students how to think, right? Because they grew up with five thousand Facebook friends who all see the In a really echo later. chamber, yeah, yeah and and I, and it is on on both sides <clears throat> um my last class there were two people who voted for trump and out of how many people are we talking out here? of 16 yeah but still it was enough to make the class really uncomfortable i mean to their credit i'm not i'm, I'm not knocking these kids too hard to their credit they they uh, they went past it and dealt with it mm-hmm. and confronted it and i that's why i have lots of hope for these these children but at the same time They grew up taking partisanship for granted, and that's weird, yeah. Especially coming from a country like Jamaica where I thought, Oh, I'm in America now, yeah, everybody's that, nobody's partisan. Um, it's 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 very third world, I gotta say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it's interesting because you kind
0: of split your time, I think, between Minnesota, Mm. which I would generally feel would be
1: more of Trump land and New mm. York City, which is mm. the opposite. The thing is, Minnesota is actually very, very liberal. Is it? It's so liberal that um, Trump is the first Republican in years to campaign there. Mm. Usually it's considered a lost cause. That's so liberal they are. But, but it's one of those places in America where the cities are liberal. Everywhere else are so right and right. so sometimes to the point of far right. So it's, yeah, we we're, we we like to talk about, you know in Minnesota in Minneapolis you'll see four church ladies going around knocking on your door asking you to support gay marriage. But go right outside you're in Michelle Batman territory. Yeah. Yeah. Um and that's how a lot of those places are. The 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 the, the liberal cities surrounded by not very liberal um Suburban and post-suburban and rural areas.
0: We are midway through my interview with Jamaican novelist Marlon James. He's a Man Booker Prize winner, and today we're talking about his most recent novel, Black Leopard, Red Wolf. It is a fantasy novel that shot to the top of the bestseller charts, and no less an expert than Neil Gaiman said that it's one of the best fantasy novels since J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Reading this book... I found it to be really cinematic. So I had to ask, are you a moviegoer? This is what Marlon James had to say.
1: Yeah, I'm a huge film fan. In fact, sometimes I think I'm more influenced by film than by books. Mm-hmm. Um, th- 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 one, because I, I absolutely love dialogue, yeah. and, I think, and, and, um, and dialogue carries a lot of my stories, and, and I teach quite a bit about dialogue. But I also think film, te- film constantly teaches me economy. So when I tell my students for example a sunset doesn't need your help. <laughs> uh you know if, you're in, if if you know film can convey the poetry of the of the everyday without necessarily having somebody giving me a metaphor in some voiceover. Yeah the glowing embers of light shone
0: heavily over the horizon. Oh my God. That... <laughs> yeah you
1: know film film don't have time to waste with with with, with all of that. Yeah. Um but I also think filmmaking um, taught me place and taught me how to set a scene. Right. Um, I for, I was overhearing. Um, I was watching it on screen. Hilary Mantel, who wrote Wolf Hall, was talking about how she storyboards a scene. Hmm. I was like, that's funny because I used to be a storyboard artist, and I used to be an illustrator. Yeah, so yeah. so um, that, but in, that, and also the whole idea of of putting things in a scene or a stage. Um, like a, a story must have what I call stage business. Um where is everybody in the scene? How does me being right beside you change the dynamic of our conversation as opposed to if I was across the street? Right. And what does it say that I know your secrets or that I don't know your secrets? How do I talk about something? Um all of that becomes, you know, very, very um important. Um you know I'll watch things like Le Samurai. You know or Rififi mm-hmm. and how they constructive the scenes, particularly particularly with economy, with as as little words as you know as they can. um and that con- that is constantly there. I think also because film is more of a mass media entertainment when I was growing up, it was easier to run into films than to run into books, right right. So yeah. I love scenes in films that tell us everything we need to know about the
0: characters with no dialogue. And Mm -hmm. I always think of uh, near the end of Lost in Translation, you know everything you need to know about the relationship between Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray when she's wearing that little pink wig Mm -hmm. and it's the end of a very long night and she just sort of gently puts her head on his shoulder Mm -hmm. and it's a beautiful, tender little moment. There's nothing sexual about Mm -hmm. it. It is just friends who have been through something Mm -hmm. that may possibly
1: have changed their lives. Mm -hmm. And you see it through that simple motion I think in a lot of ways the older a writer like William Faulkner Mm -hmm. I read his work and all I can see is silent film yeah 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 and I can tell it doesn't surprise that he eventually went to Hollywood yeah um it's not a recent thing people being hugely inspired by cinema yeah I read his work all that symbolism that's silent film Mm mm-hmm um, yeah, you know, that that's that's somebody who watched and rewatched Sunrise. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I can tell. And and sometimes I even go back to to films like Sunrise, which makes my jaw drop, um, because it just it just, there's there's so much about detail and so much about the actuality of a scene that has its own poetry, and has its own levels and layers of meaning. Uh, you know, it's it's, it's, it's objective correlative. You know, how can this object or this action tell us depth about this character before they even say something? Or before I intrude and talk about how, you know, the torrential rainpour mirrored his torrential emotions <laughs> yeah. in his heart. Raging tsunami of emotions. I know. <laughs> emotion. a raging like... <laughs> tsunami of fiery emotions when he said,
0: come now. <laughs> well, if you look at a film, a silent film like Greed, mm-hmm. which is hours long, Four hours long. The original cut, I think, was eight. Good lord, was and, it Russian? Yeah, no, it's uh, American. <laughs> but but uh, it, every uh, moment of that movie, mm-hmm. no dialogue tells you. What it's trying to portray mm-hmm. in a beautiful and fantastic way. The reason that not many people have seen it is because it's so long, and the studios threw their hands up and walked away from it. <laughs> but, uh, but it is a, it's a it's an amazing movie. If you can even see fragments of mm. it, uh, it's an incredible movie because those movies were were cast with an eye towards faces, mm. and an eye towards detail, and an mm. eye towards all that stuff.
1: That sounds like all of Ozu Ozu mm-hmm. movies. Yeah. Um I found I can never differentiate between the silent ones and the talkies, the talkies. Yeah. Uh what is that recent one I saw the one about the two boys going to school? I can't remember. It's about two schoolboys. I can't remember, but it was one of his silent films. Yeah, yeah. And I, for a while I was like, Oh, this is a silent one. <laughs> 'Cause it's <laughs> Cause it's Ozu. It's 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 so much of of, of um so much storytelling, so much narration happens in scene building. And that's something I always try to remember when I'm writing. And
0: and it plays on your imagination. You're, mm-hmm. you're filling in whatever gaps might have been left by the
1: dialogue mm-hmm. that isn't there inside your head. Yeah. yeah. I'm also a big believer in sound and smell. Yeah. Um, I want people to smell my book. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, not the smell of ink. Yeah, and and I want people to. He- I want volume. I want people to know which parts are shouted, which parts are screamed, which parts are whispered, which parts you're overhearing you're not supposed to know. Right. Um. And I'm a big you know believer in that. I um. I spoke to somebody from the Royal Society for the Blind a few years ago. He was he was actually giving me a lot of um. They gave me a special commendation for brief history, and one of the things they appreciated was how much it didn't depend on just sight. And visuals. And I always remember that. And I remember that when I write. I'm, and I'll say to people, what does it sound like? You know, I teach a 9 11 class. I go, what do you think 9 11 smelled like? Um, and it's because I'm a writer, I have eyes. Of course, I'm going to overdo the visual gags. Um, but I want to know, I want to know what, yeah, I want to know what loneliness smells like. Do you think that's
0: why when you write, you like to have music playing? You like to have a window open? You like to have mm. some kind of sensory. Action around you while you write. Lots of writers have told me I need perfect silence, and God, I need- so you amazing. like to throw on bitches brew. Yeah, side three. I understand is yes the particular- Spanish key. Yeah, this is the one that you particularly enjoy. But it, yeah. it, it stimulates you, and maybe that's where that. Yeah, because I
1: write. I write with. I need momentum. Yeah, I need momentum, and I need rhythm, and I need energy. And I think i maybe I'm a vampire. I think I just suck <laughs> it from from wherever. I also am really inspired by other how other artists make art. Mm-hmm. Like I'm surrounded by readers and books every day. I, I I get I can you know I get I get as much energy to write just staring at Damozel d'avignon
0: yeah,
1: you know, or or um, something from Kara Walker, um, as I do from reading another book. Mm-hmm. I like other art. Um, but music, again, you know, I grew up in a noisy house. There is always music. There's always shouting. There's always <laughs> nobody's going to keep quiet so I can write that term paper. <laughs> so you figure it out. Yeah. And, and, but it's, it's the damage was done. <laughs> yeah. I, um, like something like Spanish Key, I actually start listening to as I'm riding my bike to the, my office. So by the time I sit down, I'm already deep into it. And, I, and writing to me feels like I'm just catching up. Mm-hmm. To something that a story that's already going on, and that's why I, 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 that's how stories always feel to me like it's been going, it's, it's going to go on without me anyway, right. and I'm just catching up, and I put on my reporter journalist cap and start to write a news report about imagined people.
0: Well, that was my interview with Black Leopard, Red Wolf author, Marlon James. This is the first book in a planned trilogy, which will be called the Dark Star Trilogy. And it follows the journey of a mercenary known as Tracker, whose exceptional hunting skills are tested when he's tasked with finding a missing boy. The book is available wherever you buy fine books. My next guest is a comedian, author of the best-selling book The Awkward Thoughts of W. Kamau Bell and host of the Emmy award-winning show The United Shades of America, which is about to kick off its fifth season. It's a show that mixes comedy and social commentary as W. Kamau Bell, that's my guest, travels to communities across the nation to explore the unique challenges that they face. The upcoming season of the United Shades of America, which is set to premiere on June 28th on CNN, was shot months ago before the pandemic, but still promises to offer lots of insight to help you process what's going on in the world. I know that W. Kamal Bell gave me some insight in this interview. Let's have a listen to my interview with W. Kamal Bell. So what came first for you? Was it? I uh, need to make people laugh, or was there a social awareness first that kind of led to that? What, what, what order would you put that in?
2: I mean, it's hard to determine. I think I come from uh, parents who care about the world and also, are, like, just sort of are change makers by their nature. So I think that's just the DNA that's in me and the world I saw. But comedy was the thing that got me fired up as a kid. You know? And what was it about it? I was an only child, so I was in my head a lot, yeah, and yeah, I used yeah. to make my mom laugh all the time, and so <laughs> I thought I was funny because she was laughing, and then, so something about stand-up comedy, it's like, that's, that's the ultimate, like, only child thing. Like, it's just right. a person on stage <laughs> talking, and everybody else has to be quiet. You know, yeah, like, yeah. Either laugh or be quiet, but it's like, it just felt like, you know, as a kid, I was also into comics and superheroes, and there was something super heroic about stand-up comedy to me, because you were sort of like the star and you were commanding all this attention and people were sort of like you know in some sense just like they were hanging on every word so yeah to me like it just seemed like the closest thing you could be to being an actual superhero.
0: Your comedy I think it takes a couple of steps away from the stuff that you would have watched on television in the 80s. I remember those shows as being you know not take my wife please but. No but, but, I mean, but it
2: was, was the 80s style of comedy yeah. it was very observational I mean it's like it's like there's a million Seinfelds. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, like, yeah. You know. And at the time I just liked all of it, and it wasn't until I started doing comedy that I sort of realized, oh, this is the kind of comedy I'm attracted to. Which is not, it's not easy to do any kind of comedy, but it's really not, it's really, I think, a challenge to do comedy about stuff that you care about, or, like you deeply care about, because right. you have to get the issues right.
0: Let's take a, a few steps back to when you were about nine years old, and right. from what I understand, that's kind of the first time that you understood what race was. And, yeah, can yeah. You, and, and sort of set that up for me and then we'll we'll go and maybe at that point discover how that informed your comedy.
2: I mean, you know, I think it was t- it's the time I discovered how race worked in America, I'll yeah, say yeah. that. And I always knew I was black. My mom would not let me not know that. You yeah, know, yeah. I grew up in a very culturally black household, black churches, you know, black grandmothers, the blackest right. person on the planet is a black grandmother. <laughs> and so that was the life I led, but it wasn't until I was about nine or so that my mom like took me out to a, like a drugstore At the age you would like go down the street by yourself, yeah, maybe yeah. older now, but yeah, at yeah. that point it was nine, nine or 10. And we went to a drugstore, and we walked in and she sort of pointed at a guy who was looking at us down the, in the aisle, she's like, that's a store detective. Anytime you walk into a store, he's gonna be following you around. So when you go out, know these things. Don't touch anything unless you wanna buy it. Yeah. Don't stay too long. Uh, when you leave, make sure your hands are not in your pockets because they might think you took something. Have a nice day.
0: <laughs> Man, and, and how does that inform you? As a, as a nine-year-old, yeah. what do you, how do you process that? What do you do with that?
2: I mean, you, I took it in, but I also think your parents are exaggerating yeah, or, you, yeah, know, yeah, you right. think like, yeah. but I mean, I definitely took it in and I definitely was trained to look for those people. And, and also the thing that's important in that moment, trained not to be freaked out by those people. Because right. the worst thing that happen. this happens in America all the time, perfectly innocent people become freaked out by, people in power right. and then it makes those people in power react as if that person is guilty right you know and I'm not putting the blame on the people freaking out yeah. I don't think you should be followed all the time wherever you go yeah but I do think that like be at least being aware of it it puts you hopefully one step ahead that's not always true yeah. but at least being aware with how the how power works in the States
0: even when you're talking to Richard Spencer even when you're talking to Ku Klux Klan members, even when you're talking to Chicago gang members, um, there's an empathy that I think is missing from a lot of coverage here. So is journalism and this kind of empathy a way to kind of bring that together? Is that even possible?
2: I mean, I would never call myself a journalist because in my mind, journalism means, and I see this all the time, it's pretending to be unbiased. Right. Right. And I, as I've said, and as I had a show, I am totally biased. Like, <laughs> but I will sit down and talk to you, yeah. and I will genuinely listen and try to understand. So with Richard Spencer, and a lot of people didn't like it. I was like, I really want to understand. Yeah. So and why give him a
0: platform? Yeah.
2: yeah. I I think that's a really the platform and normalizing are words that really got overused in the yeah, election yeah. of Trump. Yeah. Giving Richard Spencer a platform would be like, tonight on United Shades, I'm taking a break for an hour and I'm turning it over to Richard Spencer. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah and you yeah, won't yeah. see me that's and right. I'll never <laughs> discount anything he said. I'm says. not gonna say anything. That's, giving, yeah, it, yeah. that's giving him a platform. <laughs> CNN probably wouldn't that's right. let me do that. They certainly wouldn't pay me for that episode. Yeah. Uh, that's giving him a platform. Sitting down having a conversation and letting him talk and then framing it around the whole show. A lot of people didn't watch the whole show, they just saw the commercials. Right. It was framed around, why immigration is good for America. Right.
0: You're listening to my interview with comedian, author, and host of United Shades of America, W. Kamal Bell.
2: People are much more
0: comfortable now than than I can ever remember in my life um, about being openly kind of hateful yeah. and scornful of other people. How do you think we got here?
2: I think we all, many of us, my, many of my friends did, and they were always telling me, this is going to get worse. Uh, <laughs> I hate the fact yeah. that my most cynical friends are right. Now right now. But <laughs> many people underestimated how crazy with anger a black president made some people right how they just felt like they were losing their country how it felt like an attack on all their values and so for eight years people just those people fomented hatred that were first was the tea party yeah. and also all the accusations that he wasn't born in America. Like right. they just, And a lot of people on the left sort of ignored that. So they were like, oh, dear, well, it's too bad we won. And <laughs> there was just this expectation that America was gonna continue to go in this direction right. and Obama was just gonna hand the baton off to Hillary and Hillary was gonna keep it going. Although again, I got friends who are like, Hillary, yeah. the Clintons, really? <laughs> but that's all other conversation. But I think the left underestimated how much anger was fomented. And then, and this is the key part, we use a system to elect a president in america that uses leftover slave owner math right like that's the key
0: which is the electoral, electoral college, college. Yeah.
2: like that's the that's the entire people trying to figure out why did yeah. hillary lose but if you do it the way every other nation in the world yeah. elects people hillary won but because we've can, somehow we've embedded into quote unquote democracy leftover slave owner math that the electoral college that the left is going to be fighting an uphill battle for the rest of the time right until we in the you know, until we dismantle the electoral college
0: what's the end goal of the show
2: uh i guess uh world peace is probably too big uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but,
0: but you know, is it just to entertain or is no, it no? i mean
2: it definitely, i definitely i always think the, the on some level the goal is to like the the, the small the realistic goal is to make people's cocktail conversation better like right. to make yeah, people yeah, yeah. to make people's dinner table conversation better I hear from a lot of people to have to give families ways to talk about things they weren't talking about before I hear from right. a lot of people my mom watches it with me or, I, or my dad makes me watch it and all these people who are bringing their family into the room that families watch it together Damn. and that's not something I expected but for me it's like the show isn't the 40, 43 minutes of the show it's what you do with the show it's right. the conversations you have and I hear people all talk about how I didn't know about this, or I just learned about this, or I knew about this, but and I need, but other people didn't know, and I'm glad you told them. So for me, it's about like starting conversations.
0: As a comic then, is it part of your job to kind of help people process sensitive topics, to, mm-hmm. to have a look at the world around them and figuring out just how to think about it, or a different way of thinking about it?
2: Uh, I mean, I think... I think comics can be comics for all sorts of reasons. Yeah. And I think some comics' job is to distract people from their pain. Yeah. But then some people want comics that can help them process the pain. Right. And so for me, that's the style of comedy I've always liked the most and the style of comedy I try to do is like, let's, let's move through this together. Yeah. What are
0: the common issues then that you hear from both progressives and conservatives uh, that, that are shared by them? Because I think we live in a time now where everything is so polarized and, mm-hmm. and the left and the right, don't feel like political movements to me anymore. They feel like sports teams.
2: No, I'll tell you, I did an ep- we did an episode on the south and west side of Chicago about gang violence. Yeah. We did an episode in Appalachia, like uh, coal country in yeah. the mountains. Uh, and the thing that I was very aware of with both those episodes by the time it was over was like both those communities want the same things. Mm-hmm. They both want better jobs. They want better jobs with higher wages, more benefits. They want better schools for their kids and they want their communities to be safe. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that's not, those aren't partisan just, issues. No, it's not, it's in no. a warm place to pee. It's no, just exactly, it's yeah, what yeah, everybody yeah, wants, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. All the cable channels. <laughs> you know, like, so like, these aren't partisan issues. And I feel yeah. like we do have to get out of the team sport of electoral politics. Yeah. People want the same things. Now there's also cultural things or religious things that yeah. you want. Well, then it's about well, you can have that unless it's unless it's hurting somebody else. Yeah, yeah. So you know, so but there's nothing, and that's why you have to convince people that like that woman wearing a hijab has nothing to do with you. Right. <laughs> you not know, like, hurting you in the least. Yeah, yeah. Whether you feel like she's oppressing herself yeah. or whether you feel like she's not blah 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 a feminist, it has nothing to do with you. And until it has something to do with you, don't worry about it. <laughs> until she walks over to you and says, "Here's your hijab," don't worry about it. Right. And so I feel like that's the thing that. Like you know, marriage equality happened in the states a little later than it happened around other countries, yeah, yeah. but but it happens. People are like, I guess this really has nothing to do with me, and so the more we get people to that place, the more we can get to like, how about better schools, better jobs? And all the cable channels.
0: That was my interview with comedian, author, and the host of United Shades of America, W. Kamau Bell. We just have a couple of minutes left. I know people are looking for stuff to stream, to keep busy, to keep those minds and eyes occupied. So I thought, let's go to an expert. Here's a minute of Spike Lee talking about his perfect double bill.
1: Just my great double bill, Ace in the Hole, and Face in the Crowd, directed by Billy Wilder. And Illika Sam, both films coming on the heels of the two big success on the waterfront. And uh something like that. hot. Huge, huge <laughs> huge hits. Then they come with Ace in the Hole, Facing Crowd, panned yep. across the board, nobody went. Those films are really too dark mm-hmm. for the n- Eisenhower 50s, but they stood the test of time. And, yeah. and, and they, they had the crystal ball. I mean, you look at face in the crowd. It, they predicted Viagra, <laughs> reality TV, yep. all this stuff. The, the power of the, uh, of the medium of
0: television. That was Spike Lee on his perfect double bill. That's a face in the crowd and ace in the hole. You can find both those movies on one or another of your streaming services. Thanks for listening today. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying healthy and staying safe. We'll talk again soon.